Ja, ik ja, knijt in de slaap dan. En dan kost je een witte juice, hebben niet? Michael Palin. Ik did, yeah. Ik dacht dat. Ik stik eraan, dan niet zo. Ja, dat was een pretty cool opportunity, eigenlijk. Hij was in Hong Kong voor een art exhibition. At the and now I'm gonna forget. It's right down at the Central Piers. They had an okay. art exhibition because I guess he worked for BBC for 20 or 30 years yeah. doing the travel documentaries, yeah. host Monty Python. And I guess he had a photographer named Basil Pow that was his friend, confidant, yeah. and went on every one of his excursions around to the seven continents with him. And so they decided, since Basil Pow's from uh, Changchow Island on oh. Hong Kong. That to do the global launch of his art exhibition, they chose Hong Kong uh-huh. uh, Maritime Museum. That's where it was, uh, Pier Nine or Pier Ten. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he was here for a weekend uh, launching the exhibition, and he sat down with me when I worked at HK Mag. Okay, and just in case I was totally obscure, Michael Palin was the famous guy from Monty Python, who went on to become another famous sort of travel documentarian. Yeah, he was uh, in the movie A Fish Called Wanda. That's right. Um, I, he didn't have a broad acting career after Monty Python. He was in, obviously in all of the movies, but yeah. was a founding member of Python. And uh, pretty interesting. I mean, what a dream job to travel around the world and yeah. just have a film crew follow you around. So I was pretty envious of him. But he was just wonderful, insightful. I uh, was happy to talk about any part of his career. It wasn't just, you know, please don't bring up that Monty Python stuff. I couldn't bear it. Uh, just a lovely man, and uh, All right. that was. Maybe we'll get onto that as we dig into your amazing career. Okay, let's start with my mem- one of my memories of you. I was in Macau, okay. Yeah. And I was at the kindergarten doing a clown show in Macau in the kindergarten, and one of the teachers said, "Oh, you work in Hong Kong. Do you know Sean A. Bear?" <laughs> so there you are. Your kindergartner okay. said that. No. A, a kindergarten teacher. Oh, so teacher. I was doing a clown show in Macau. And the teacher there said, "Oh, you're from Hong Kong. Do you know Sean Abair?" So there you are. You're famous. Yeah, that's <laughs> one of my four fans in uh, in Macau. Great. Yeah, she, she was very pretty. Oh, that's yeah. yeah. So that's good to know. Yeah, that's good. And am I, am I pronouncing your name right? Is it Abair? Yeah, si- to- totally silent H. That's right. Correct. Totally silent. Alrighty. Briefly, in case there's someone on this planet, um, you know, all my listeners, both of them. We'll be delighted <laughs> to um, to know. Uh, is someone who doesn't know what you do. When people ask you, "What is your job, jo- Sean? How do you make money? What do you, what do you, what do you tell them?" Uh, writer and comedian. That's yeah. on a good day. Yeah, on a, on a good day, uh, I could make enough money from creative endeavors to claim that that's my job. But you got to hustle. I mean, I yes, I bartended. I you know, I've worked as a magazine editor. I've worked as a teacher. And yeah. From university all the way down to kindergarten, um, worked in sales, marketing. Um, let's let's go with let's go with um, uh, writer and comedian. Sure, I like that. Yeah, I'll take that. And you, you can just about scra- jumping everywhere, make make a living on on a good good day, good year. I have yeah, from time to time, but uh, relocating. That's those are the tricky times. Like if you can stay in one place, you can build that career, ah. um, make it more likely as as the months and, and years pass yeah, by. Yeah, we get uh, onto that. Hong Kong versus Canada. Why you moved back and forth, and we'll get, we'll get into that in a minute. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, very quickly, uh, let's do a bit of aimless, um, aimless. No, very point point forward, insightful uh, self promotion. Um, your website. 
Is it seanabear.com? You nailed it. That's the one. And if you don't know how to spell Abear, or, or Sean, because that can be taught in many ways. It's an awful name. It's, yeah, S-E-A-N-H-E-B-E-R-T yeah, you dot com. Yeah, you've got a hard lane to spell her, because if you say it on the phone, they'll be like, what did you say? Is it Sean with a S-H? Or I spelled the entire thing. It's an Irish first name and a French-Canadian, an Acadian-Canadian mm. last name. No, I was looking Canadian. at your website. It's fantastic. Really good. You've got a killer photo on your, um... On your dates page, that black and white photo from the Hong Kong comedy uh, competition. Yeah, one of that the, is the amazing finals photo. of the comedy competition. That that's was the a, nice one. That's a really classy photo. So go in and look at Sean's um, website, seanabear.com. And if you click on the dates page, you see this amazing photo. Yeah, if you really look closely, no one's laughing. It's great. <laughs> it's great. It's, visually, it looks great until you look very closely and realize they didn't oh, time no. it to a punchline. They timed it to just... Um, One of the lengthy setups that contributed to me not winning that. Oh, no, so don't look at that page. So don't look <laughs> at that page. Yeah, you get the wrong idea. Um, life story. Let's go to the, back to the beginning. Um, you're from Canada? Yes, uh, the With Toronto area. Toronto area. Yeah. And um, parents, what do your, your parents do? Uh, my father is a headhunter. A headhunter? Yeah. yeah. The, uh, not a tribal headhunter collecting shrunken heads. No, it's a weird, uh, obviously weird job title, but yeah. executive search agent, yes. I think, is... Uh, and my mother does a wide range of odd jobs, but uh, when I was growing up, she was uh, she was a stay-at-home mother and okay. raconteur and entrepreneur and traveler. So okay, uh, and she continues to live that uh, that lifestyle. Today. And maybe that's passed on to you slightly. Uh, yeah, perhaps maybe yeah. the entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah. Brothers and sisters. Uh, I've got six brothers and sisters. Whoa, six. Yeah, wow. uh, we're not overly religious. I think we just. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I, I'm not sure what the uh, the inspiration for that is, but uh, yeah, it's a f- large family. Are you oldest, youngest, in the middle? Somewhere? Second eldest. Ah, you're, you're one of the big boys. Ah. Yeah, the youngest is uh, still just starting at high school. Now, yeah, and the eldest is a university professor. Okay, so we have quite a range. Wow. So um, if you're one of the oldest, I guess your brothers and sisters didn't influence your career. Was there anybody who? What did, what did you study at school, and what made you move on to the career that you've taken? It definitely no part of my education led me to <laughs> uh, performing. I always liked performing when growing up. I was in school plays. Ah, I uh, hosted talent shows when I was at school. I was did the morning announcements. Like always had sort of a, a desire for attention and you know some performative elements. Uh, did magic when I was a kid as a hobby. Ah. Um, so, so was that. It's pretty much one of your main hobbies, performing. Always, is always. Your main interests. Yeah, I once dreamed that I would do, like, uh, an acting program for university, and I think my dad knocked me upside of the head one time and said, you know, that's a f- perfectly good fallback. You could always do that for fun, but yeah. maybe have something else that's more solid, um, which is probably great advice. So, again, we have the interest in acting and performing, but we have the... Um, the, not, not, not really. Uh, your father's suggesting that maybe it's just a backup plan. So how, how, did, how did you? Were there any turning points? How did you end up where you are today? Well, I mean, obviously, as I just was saying, I've got tons of backup plans in terms of making money when performing doesn't uh, doesn't do the trick. So it's not a bad idea to have a wider range of yeah. interests and, and get some skill sets beyond that. But uh, it, it always just seemed to appeal to me. I, I once did a job. Uh, when I was in university, so I studied political science okay. right, when I went to undergraduate, and 
even like the performative elements of that, like uh, would run for student government, was always <laughs> part of uh, kind of leadership stuff, but yeah. not necessarily because um, I was I was I just liked the speaking in public. I liked uh, similar you know, to me campaigning. Similar to me because I I was in university. And um, when I was thinking about what I'm going to do after university, I thought, well, you know, maybe I could be what they, or in England is called a barrister, who's right. the lawyer who, who actually speaks in court, performs in court. You know, he's the, he's the lawyer who, who goes up in... in right, in barrister and solicitor. Yeah. yeah, I had a... I wrote the LSAT, which is our North American exam for law school, had a similar idea, went on to teach. So the funny through line is that all... At all points, there's there's standing in front of a crowd, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So whether it's children, whether it's a jury, whether it's uh, literally as part of a show, I always kind of had an idea that I wanted to be uh, up in front of a crowd. Not not because I'm, you know, so desperate for attention and it's the only thing that kind of gets you me out of bed. It's just something I enjoy doing. Yeah. And, uh, and felt, you know, from a younger age, I was pretty good at it. You know, and I, I remember I was... I think when I was 10 years old, I made the finals of a school speech competition uh-huh. and kind of had the inspiration to try to make the speech funny. And even from that age, kind of thought, well, this is pretty cool. Yeah, you know, yeah. this was a good way to get attention, you know, a socially acceptable way to get attention. And, uh, yeah, so when I was in university, I had, uh, was offered a job through a marketing company um, who had seen my resume and saw that I had put at the bottom of my resume that an interest was stand-up comedy. Oh. And uh, I think they interpreted that as my interest in doing stand-up comedy. Of course, the interest was just an insatiable appetite for listening to okay. and watching stand-up comedy. And so they called me in to audition for a game show host job, which was a marketing campaign that where you travel around the country in Canada. Uh, there it is. Oh, you already had that. Yeah, that yes. all lined up as a question. Yeah, I hosted... I kind of went in and... Uh, was that your job after university, your first job? It was two summers uh, during university. Yeah. So it was, uh, I was able to leave school and do it for about three or four months where it was, uh, I drove the truck, I would phone the uh, fairgrounds. Okay, I've, I've got a vague idea what this is, but let's just, let's tell people properly. So what, what was your job? You were... So I hosted, the first summer I hosted a game show called The Fun Show, okay. which was for a a candy company in Canada. They were yeah. launching some new uh, three or four different types of candies, and they wanted to put on a live stage show at malls or at, at summer yeah. festivals where you would come and watch a game show that was happening, but the entire thing was just a ruse to like give people free samples of candy yeah. and to drop the name of the candy as yeah. often as possible. So I'd, I had a logo on my shirt. I had a logo behind me every single... We ran this sort of uh, trivia-type show, but... It was just a vehicle to get the name of the brand out, yeah. right? So it's, I mean, experiential marketing kind of thing. Um, so they had me come in and audition, and they'd sent me a script, and I thought the script was awful. Like, it was supposed to be kind of this show that would appeal to all, you know, a family comes by, okay. the kids would think it's interesting, the adults would yeah. think it's interesting. And so they had this kind of goofy script, and I... Uh, came in the day of to audition, and the guy next to me in the audition was in the movie Billy Madison. Oh. Uh, and I guess he was sort of chatting with all the other guys in the audition. They're all actors, I guess. Right. And they were all kind of bragging about the things they'd done. And I said, and, yeah, you know, who are you? And I said, I'm, I'm nobody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nothing. I did a couple school plays, whatever. Uh, and I guess I'd gone in and, and said, if you guys don't mind, I'd love to... Uh, 
go <laughs> go off script here. Like I I read this, this seems Renamed. fine, but like you know, this seems like the kind of thing I might need to improvise because I'm bringing people out of the crowd. Yeah. And they said, hey, you know, go go for it, do whatever you got to do. And I kind of just improv like a 30 minute game show with the the people in the company. It sounds like the kind of um the fact that you're a beginner and a newbie. This is the kind of thing a beginner and newbie might say. Yeah, why not just I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, I've never been in an audition. I didn't no, realize I was supposed to stick and it to the script. Here. It yeah. Well, then they said, you know, it, they felt like they had screwed up themselves by saying they should have gone after people to say, hey, feel free to kind of muck it up and, yeah. and improv this. And uh, and so I ended up getting it and was pretty well in over my head. And uh, But it was the best, you know, it was like a... Uh, it was like doing a, a master's degree in performing because every single day of the summer I'd perform for eight hours. Wow. So I had a wig, I had a three-piece suit, I'd be in the beating sun, you know, 25, 30-degree sun, just sweating. I think I lost about 30 pounds of water weight. So the, just some of these time. were outdoor shows, not, not inside the show. Right, at, yeah, just out in an outdoor festival. Okay. Um, we do them in the mall sometimes, and it was from 9 a.m. to 6, 7, 8, 9 p.m. sometimes we'd do a show every 30 minutes. We'd come up, and Gosh. we had people in front of the stage giving out candy and throwing candy, but it was all improvised. So I had kind of a shtick I'd do at the beginning, and I'd be my own announcer, and I'd bring myself up, and I had a character name. I was Bob Funnerson, and I'd have to bring people out of the crowd. Sometimes it would be elderly people, children. I had a guy come up and didn't realize how drunk he was when I had him up. And, you know, <laughs> what did he do? Well, I mean, it, generally, we would, since it was colorful and it was a candy company and there were children in the crowd, I yeah. would try to limit people from swearing or doing <laughs> too risque, but I was always trying to balance that fine line of being kind of goofy enough and kiddish enough that, that the little kids would stick yeah. around, right? Like, yeah. make yourself a clown, like, be very energetic mm-hmm. and over the top, but also kind of s- slip in some little punchlines that the adults would, exactly. would think, oh, yeah, that was that's it. That I was for at, me, that's right? That's what I do at birthday party shows. I have the, the funny visual stuff for the kids, but some of the verbal stuff is, is good for the adults. Exactly, and I'm sure a few times I, I crossed the line here and oh, there, and, and we would... Uh, you know, we'd have the client come in from the candy company, and and they'd say, you know, really rain it in here, Sean. They're, you know, that guy over there is our boss, right? So, uh, so it was it was a fun job, but it was exhausting. We literally would we we built the stage in the morning, we'd set it up, we'd interview and hire the staff that would uh, be with us for every single city. We'd drive the truck overnight, city to city, like it was. And you did this like for a, two summers. Did it for two summers. And next, doing. So was it, you said so many eight hours a day. Yeah, at and least. Well, the days would be like 14, 16 yeah. hour days because we'd have to come in in the morning. So you must have learned open. pretty far. I mean, after after a week of that, you must have felt really seasoned, even after just one week. Definitely by the end of the second summer. Mm. I mean, I, I was quite familiar with approaching a venue, you know, yeah. assessing what you need to actually run a show, making sure everything's set up. You know, are the mics working? Are the lights working? In, in, as I say, it was like doing a master's degree in, in like creating a show from scratch every day. The second summer we did what, what uh, we worked for a granola bar company, okay. and it was the Fiber One Believer Tour, and we had like a Believer Lever, and I played a instead of a game show host, I played like a, like almost like a evangelical like kind of religious like motivational speaker type guy, <laughs> where I'd be out in the mall kind of with like a with, like, a tight shirt on and a microphone, you know, trying to get people to, you know, we're looking for true believers today. We want you to come over here, and if you try this granola bar, I, uh, believe me when I tell you it's healthy, and believe me when I tell you, you know, it's got, you know, whatever the hell it was, 12 grams of fiber, and if they, I could make them a believer on the microphone, they would pull the lever, and, it was, you know, we're going across Canada all summer trying to make all Canadians believers in the fiber one, you know, it's like, 
again, it's you're, you're a corporate shill, yeah. but at the same time, you know, to be on a microphone for literally eight hours a day, you know, it's like being an auctioneer almost. Like you just like speaking at that speed, and there's sort of a performative element. Um, Did you have to do a lot of the logistical stuff, or was there quite a big backup to the crew to help it, you? Initially, I was sort of just the performer, and then by the end of the second year, I was they sort of the coordinator of the program. So we would be picking the venues, and I would be the one in the morning that would you know phone in make yeah. sure security could let us in they'd show us to the spot i'd say you know maybe this is not going to work and so what, what did you learn if there's someone who's you never know like someone who's just starting this got this gig coming up the next week what did you learn anything in particular about that i mean i think what you learn is that it doesn't matter what in any show it doesn't matter if you're setting up the show if you're the one building the stage or if you're the one you know creating an audience or you're the guy who's somebody's putting makeup on you and you're that you just get on the stage yeah. and they give you the mic um Every something will go wrong. Anything could go wrong at any point, and it's the responsibility of everybody who's working the show to kind of be flexible. Yeah. And you know, there's no room for divas when you're, you know, on site 16 hours a day and you're performing. You know, if yeah, you're tired. You're always tired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hot. Yeah, it's hot for everybody. You know, yeah. you don't have enough. You know, food. You don't have enough water. You don't okay. have enough of anything. So adaptability. Um, well, sure. I mean, and that's something Going you learn. Going with the flow, enjoying the mistakes, maybe. I, I mean, I'm standing in a mall. I, there's absolutely no control over the crowd. You know, yeah. somebody wants to come up and grab the mic out of my hand, it happens. Somebody wants to come up and throw up on our set, it's happened, right? Somebody's <laughs> drunk, a little kid runs in. Our We had our set light. Uh, it it caught on fire during a Because, during okay, a show. you're not working in a theater, so your setup time is very short, and you haven't got all the facilities that a theater will have. No, we had, we had like, a ridiculous amount of wiring in this wooden <laughs> box. Like, we were in the middle of a mall, so we had wiring contained inside of a box, and at one point we, I had, you know, I'm not a trained, you know, like, roadie or whatever, yeah. and I had bought the wrong... Uh, power bar and, and I plugged in like 19 things like a you know oh, okay. Christmas vacation style like plug in a million yeah. things in. and uh, I was talking to a guy this is in Edmonton and we were at the mall and, and I'm saying to the guy you know what do you think of the granola bar and he turns around and he says uh now that box is on fire. <laughs> and I said, you know, well, you're on fire, buddy. Like, what do you think of the granola? And he realized, he said, no, really, that, that thing looks like it's on fire. And oh. I turn around, and there's smoke billowing out of our set, like just this painted yellow box, just black smoke coming out. And, you know, it's like in the middle of a show, you got to stop and be like, oh, okay, show's over, guys. Like, there is a fire here. Um, we had our set collapse in Montreal uh, one time. And thank goodness it was not during the show. Uh, but we had a gigantic setup for our game show where uh, we had our Vanna, quote-unquote, our Vanna White would be sitting in the sequin dress, and she would kind of roll around. Vanna White is the name of the character. Vanna White's the woman on Wheel of Fortune for decades oh, that, would, yes. that would touch the letters, okay. right? So yeah. we would hire our own Vanna. And so yeah. when I would say, you know, uh, it's you know history for 300, Vanna, and she would turn around the question, and we had this gigantic board, and it weighed about 600 pounds, and every morning we'd have to... We yeah. install it on the stage. We have to take it down, put it in the truck so it wouldn't get damaged and stolen. And uh, we were in this old street festival in Montreal. And, of course, it was like maybe six or seven-story uh, tall buildings on either side. Yeah. Windy day, and it had created this wind tunnel kind of in this street festival. <laughs> and we just finished a show, and I'd come off the stage, and I'm handing out uh, samples of the candy to the yeah. people right after the show. And all of a sudden, just it goes, whomp, and you hear this massive sound, and people scream in the festival, and I turn around, and our whole setup, our whole stage (laughs) has collapsed. But, I mean, five minutes earlier, I had, 
like on children, stage. children on oh, the stage. Oh god! And uh, you know, and here, like, we dodged this bullet, but yeah. of course, we had to shut down the show. People had just seen this. Yeah, it's kind of frightening if you do something full time for a, a lot of stage hours. Things do go wrong, even if it's only one percent chance. If you've done a hundred shows, then on average, one of those shows is going to have a, a have one of those one percent things go wrong. I've had things like um. I finished the show, I was take, putting the saddle off my giraffe six-foot-high unicycle. Yeah. Quite early on in my career, I hadn't quite realised what was going to happen. I pulled the saddle, the saddle off, and the rest of the whole pole of this metal pole, six-foot-high of metal, just goes swinging down, and just as he's the birthday kid by about yeah. two centimetres. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, thank goodness nobody ever got hurt, or, you know, like, we had people on stage and their podium would collapse, like, and heavy, like, stuff's heavy, you know, you built a stage, and, and again, it's, it just shows you that, you know, you have to be on your toes, you have to be able to be flexible, I, you know, I'm not up there with the script, as I say, it's like, as things happen, you kind of got to roll with the punches, and, and the same happens in a stand-up show, if you're hosting, you know, anything, and yeah. something can happen, the mic cuts out, you know, the lights stop working, you get to a venue and nothing's right, you don't just say, well, you know, you know, I don't perform under these conditions. No. So you get it done. You you get it done, and that's well, I how. I find sometimes it can be. Sometimes the show is really good under difficult conditions. Sometimes oh, I mean, I've you know I did a show in Toronto a month ago where um, the mic cut out, and it, yeah. it wound up being like the biggest. You know, I kind of ad libbed a line as a result, and it was the biggest laugh of my set. There it's you like go. you don't you don't necessarily know, you, you know, it's. The fact that it was ad-libbed and the crowd knew it kind of, I'm sure, was one of the reasons why they thought it was so funny because, yeah. obviously, I couldn't have prepared for that. Yeah, they know it's not prepared. Exactly. And so, you know, the the ability to be flexible and roll with the punches as a, in any type of performance is your, you know, serves you, right? It, yeah. It's kind of like that's your schooling uh, is, you know, a seasoned professional. Well, so well, done everything. You've right? had, so you have two summers of this where you're learning a lot and you're finishing your political science degree yeah. in Canada. Yeah, and then you're gonna finish your degree and get a proper job. Was that the uh, the proper job in inverted commas? Was that the idea or, or not? No, I uh, I was gonna go to graduate school and and wound up deferring because um, you know I'd been in school for twenty years yeah. or whatever you know since yeah. I was five years old and uh, and I had some friends that were going to teach overseas in Korea so um, they said you know it sounds like a good thing they're offering a lot of money yeah. it's we've never. Um, you know, growing up with seven kids in your family, we, we didn't travel much when I was a kid. I had barely left the, barely been on a plane, never mind left the continent. So, you know, I had some friends saying, this is something we'd never done. We've never traveled before. Why don't we go off and, you know, we, school is there when, okay. when you come back. You can always do that. And so... Um, so you travel to Korea? To, to Seoul, yeah. Got a job. As an English teacher? As an English teacher. There a you go. Typical white man move. Well, this in, is uh, me as well. I finished university. I had no idea what to do. I ended up teaching English as a foreign language in Singapore. Yeah, absolutely. And you never know where your life's going to take you, right? And that was, uh, I'm grateful I took that yeah. that, uh, that opportunity. I did end up going back afterwards and uh, and continuing and doing and going to grad school. And, okay. um, and, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much that experience served me. It maybe did show me that, uh, you know, I always say if you can do something and find out that that's not what you want to do with your life, that's just as valuable yeah. as going in and finding out you do want to do something yeah. else, right? And so I kind of went back home and uh, and realized that I wanted to be anywhere but, um, you know, sitting in a grad department and TAing and grading papers and, um, you know, waking up at 6.30 in the morning to 
to tutor, you know, uh, a bunch of depressed, hungover 17-year-old cynical kids who don't want to learn about Canadian or American politics or political theory or uh, whatever. Again, a great experience. I got to teach. I was in front of a crowd, and that was yeah. fun for me, but uh, but continued to kind of push me to go back and do the things I was looking to do. So so you finished, did you finish um, grad school? Grad? I did, yeah. Okay. I did, uh, I studied comedy. Oh, my. oh! I uh, did study political satire, so I went back and was doing a political science. So do you have a master's in political satire? Essentially, yeah. Wow. I did a, a thesis project on the power of, of satire to change the way the mainstream media covers politics. Fantastic. So I studied like uh, John Stewart and Stephen yeah. Colbert, um, who you know in the U.S. are now household names. But at that time, was uh, I had to really talk people into letting me study that as a legitimate avenue of academic yeah. study. There was a lot of sort of skeptics that that was anything that would... Uh, you know, it's funny, even, you know, nowadays people kind of regard those guys as important contributors to the political discourse in the U.S., but even 2009 when I, when I started that, that project, people were pretty skeptical. I had to get a lot of signatures from yeah. people that say, yeah, okay, that's something you're allowed okay. to study. So 2009, 2010, when did you finish your, your graduate work? Uh finished coursework in 2010-2011, defended the thesis in 2012, and the week I defended it, got on a plane and uh, and left Canada again. Went to backpack through South America for a few months and then got on a plane from there and went to Hong Kong. Ah, and that's your... I first pretty met you. Yeah, pretty well. I'd never been to Hong Kong and had some friends. Uh, that so is this where your stand-up career begins, in Hong Kong? Uh, pretty well. I mean, I I kind of dabbled, obviously was extremely interested in comedy and had studied it and yeah. was around it. Um, the comedy club in Canada, uh, Yuck Yucks, that's sort of the biggest name in, okay. in comedy in Canada, was a sponsor of that game show that I hosted. Um, so I used to get free passes all the time. And so it was always around comedy, but... Um, it was Hong Kong that I decided, okay, I'm going to go, you know, four or five nights. I'm going to go to comedy clubs. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to meet yeah. the club owners. I'm going to do this as a full-time thing. Because I'd kind of just circled around every type of performance. You know, I played music. Mm. I, you know, sang and done stuff. I've done all kinds of stuff on stage. But I'm like, truly, the thing I'm interested in doing was stand-up. But I was so terrified of going in and finding out I was awful at it that I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. And right. I shouldn't have, but... Um, ah. In a way, you know, I, I'm a believer that things happen kind of for a reason. Maybe it's a spiritual kind of thing, but um, I think... No, if you open it, your mind and you open open up the possibilities, things will happen. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I always was interested in comedy, but wasn't sure I had anything to say. And Hong Kong is a pretty perfect place to start, because, you know, the scene was... In 2012, it was, it was growing, it was, but it was still quite new... Yeah, um, still fairly friendly. Um, great, great. Not too much pressure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, mostly friendly, mostly definitely growing. Um, the cliques are forming, but yeah, but it was also great you know, uh, so, and easy to get. I mean, main thing is easy to get stage time, wasn't it? Relatively easy. It was easy to get stage time, especially as somebody that kind of had been around stages before, yeah. right? So. That was helpful. Um, it was oh, like a trial by fire. Like I, I was, remember I was you coming into on, stuff pretty quick. I remember you coming on, going on a stage, and uh, and the first I saw you the first week you did a seven minute set, and then next week I saw you did a whole different seven minute set. I was like wow, this guy 
how come you had so much material? And you said, Ben, it was a lot of hard work. Were you working like crazy in your free time in those first few months in Hong Kong? Uh, yeah, I spent like, I'd, I'd been, even though I wasn't performing, I was writing jokes for years. So okay. I had, I had this kind of, you know, a, a file on my computer oh. of stuff that I'd been writing since, since university. Yeah. And so when I kind of had the opportunity to go in and, and, you know, go to an open mic and do a set and, uh, I got a good response from it. And then, you know, Jamie, the club owner said, you know, come in next week and show me some different stuff. And I thought, well, I don't have different stuff. That was that was the first time for any of that stuff. Uh, and then I just kept going into that file, and it was like, you know, just pulling water out of a well. Well, this is his, his synchronicity and things opening up. Just, just by chance, my next question is, how do you rehearse and practice? And this is sort of what we're talking about. How did you uh, how do you go about writing your, your material? Um, you had a big file of stuff you collected over yeah, the years. Yeah, I had a file. How do you turn that into a, into a, into a set? Uh, or, or do you? Uh, well, I think it's changed. I mean, now it would be different from what it was then. Yeah. Then it was just, you know, I was reading it frantically, like, what doesn't suck? <laughs> like, yeah. like, what here, like, seems like coming out of my mouth, it could turn into yeah, something. Yeah, it's hard, though, isn't it, I find? Because like, I read it at home, and I think, what doesn't suck? Okay, this, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. And then, uh, then I go backstage, and I realize that a lot more stuff sucks. And by the time I'm on stage, I realize that actually everything sucks. Right. Sometimes your criteria of judging gets higher and higher as you get closer to the stage time. Yeah. <laughs> when when I started, I would think, I thought a lot about wording and concepts. Like, it was always about, you know, what, what uh, like, what idea do I have that I kind of have an interesting take on? Yeah. You know, where, oh, that's a funny approach or yeah. whatever. Or, oh, that's a funny, like, turn of yeah. phrase or that's a funny joke or whatever. And uh, nowadays, that's not really... I don't get excited about material because it has a funny approach. I get excited because it has a funny, um, like there's something sticky in it in the way I get to perform it. Like if I figure out a way that I get to do a character through it or I get to... So you're interested in the performance, the, the performance, characterization? Yeah, because to me that's, uh, that's what makes it exciting to try. So mm. for me, if, if I have a, a bit of new material and it's, you know, I really want to talk about this topic. I don't think it's enough for me to say, you know, I have a really funny perspective on Donald Trump or something. Yeah. It would be, you know, would I have a, I don't, that's a bad example, I don't have a joke about Donald Trump. I'm not interested in talking about that. But at the same time, if I had, like, a great impression yes. of Donald Trump, that would be, to me, a far more interesting uh, incentive for me to go up yeah. on stage and do that because what through that performance can I channel that will get the crowd to connect with the material? Um, that's what I'm more looking for now when I'm working on stuff. Like, but people can probably find you on, on YouTube. There's stuff on there, yeah. I'm because, pretty, yeah, you, you, I'm pretty you, energetic. I'm pretty, yeah. you know. I can remember you being on stage with your your face bright red, your, your veins popping out of your necks as you really got into your emotions yeah. and rage with, yeah. your, with, your, with your octopus car trying to people trying to paint. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a... Octopus car's a car for tapping to paper things. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, that that bit, was, I used to close with that bit, and that was, you know, it's, I like that it's a performance. I mean, for me, stand, like, I came from something that was much more performative mm. than some people would consider, um, you know, a lot of styles of stand-up. Mm. Maybe, like, older-fashioned kind of, you know, you look at a guy like Robin Williams, he's, you know, or Eddie Murphy, like, yeah. these guys are, you know, they're all over the stage performing. That's To me, that's that's sort of more the style that I'm... Yes. interested in bringing onto the stage rather than sort of standing there and being, uh, 
you know, more monotonous. Why is and, cracking? Yeah, you know, give it a dead, kind of deadpan. Yeah, here's a joke. Let me. No, hear it you're right. Quick, you've got you know. um, you've got that whole other element that uh, that entertains by being so uh, being so emotional and, and the 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 acting, the performance, the physicality, the emotions. You've got a whole other level that you can you can entertain the audience with. Not yeah, just not just the jokes. It's like. I I had trouble for a long time to get away from my background as like a very broad. I mean, interest. I mean, you 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 do children's I performance. Have the same you do clowning. So, oh, I've way the same problem. And when I first started, I I saw a lot of similarities with like I would do a voice when yeah. I get on stage, like you know, hey, ladies and gentlemen, and, yeah. and I'd watch a video and I'd be like, why am I talking like that? Like, why yeah. am I like why can't I sound more normal? <laughs> um, and. You know, then I'd be like, well, stop being so hard on yourself. You spent years doing, like, a much broader style of performance, um, you know, for children, for families, right? And so to expect that I'm going to come on and just have a very comfortable ability to just speak as myself and think that's going to be funny, uh, it's a lot to ask. It's taken me years, and I'm still not there. You know, I still work on, you know, going back and watching a set of myself and saying, yeah, that sounds more like if I'm sitting having a beer with friends, that's how I might tell a story, right? Yes. Oh, God, I don't like to talk all about me on the podcast. It should be about me, but yeah, I have the same. I have exactly the same issue because my full time job is a full time clown, and that's what pays the bills. That's what I do. I loved. It. I love it. So whenever I go on stage to, to do stand up comedy, um, do I do I push the clown side? Because when I most feel most natural, it's when the condoms on my head. Right. And I'm doing this trick where I put a condom on my head and I blow it up, which is basically just a clown act for, for adults. Yeah, it's, oh, it's different. It's yeah. it, there's nobody else taking that joke on the comedy show. Not at the moment, but apparently, apparently, um, oh, who was it? Um, Howie Mandel used to do it apparently a long time ago. Of the condom, the the condom on head. Yeah, I've, I've never seen it, but apparently. Have you seen Howie Mandel's stand up from like, uh, back in the yeah, back in the eighties? Well, again, he was a clown sort of guy, wasn't he? He was extreme. Yeah. It mean very, very animated, but yeah. but playing a character like yeah. he was not himself. No. He was. Um, <laughs> it's a. It almost hasn't aged well. He's playing a like a buffoon character. Yeah. Like he's. Yeah. It's almost like playing kind of like Curly on the Three Stooges. Yeah. But today, watching it, you almost think he's making fun of like mental. I know. Mental, <laughs> mentally handicapped people. Like it, it almost doesn't age well that style, and yet it's a very old style. Yeah. It's a very. But he's playing like a buffoon. Like he's playing mm. somebody who has an IQ of a forty kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that, that's um, totally so very broad. He's wearing, you know, suspenders. He's and wearing a practically a clown suit. Yeah, it you're exactly right. He's got sometimes he even has face paint. He's putting, yeah. you know, pies in his face. So it's a uh, that's that's this exact style where how do you how do you turn that into, you know, I got married the other day. And, I know. You know I'm now starting. I know. To, you know. How do you how do you turn those two things? Into I know. The so same sometimes, act, right? I, yeah. Well, so I have the same thing when I'm on stage. Do I? Which way do I go? And is it is it worth going? In, in a more in a more acceptable stand-up comedy direction, uh, whereas actually my most of my my professional life is is making money doing clown shows. Anyway, interesting. But it has to be true to you, right? Like that's it is it true to me. To, yeah, yeah. The voice has to sound like if this if me screaming and sweating and jumping around felt like you know that guy's not like that, yeah. right? I mean, like I'm trying to exaggerate what I'm actually like and stand up lets me do things that I wish I could do all the time. You know, yeah. I wish I could scream at people when, yeah. you know, I, they're, they're walking too slow in front of me. That was a true, that was an energy that when I lived yeah. in Hong Kong I had. I don't have it anymore now that I live in a 
place where that, that stress doesn't exist for me, but, you know, those were jokes about things that I was hoping people in Hong Kong would connect yeah. to, which is, you know, the urgency, the impatience, right? Mm. Um, and so, you know, that was my exaggerated energy yes. of the moment. Uh, but that has to be that has to be in me, right? Yeah. People have to believe, like, oh, geez, this guy really. There's a side of him that's really angry, <laughs> that really wants to get out, or there's a side of him that's super goofy or wants to do that stuff. Otherwise, it doesn't ring true. You know, it's like uh, yeah. if you're doing open mics and you're, you know, you're trying all these different things, and sometimes you try something and it just it isn't you, and sometimes you try something and yeah. you realize, wow, that really did connect with the crowd. I didn't even realize that was in me, and you know, that's that's kind of the you know, that's the experimentation of performance. Right? So, so I say comedians, finding, finding your voice, that's all stand comedians say, finding it. Yeah, and you're not going to find it looking in the same place over and over, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're going to find it by trying a bunch of new stuff, and you'll bomb out a bunch of times, but again, you f- it's just as valuable to find out what's not your voice as it is to find out what is your voice. Right? Yeah, yeah. Any, t- any tips for me, Sean? Any tips no, for me? Keep, keep going. Keep, keep going. Keep try, try the uh, try being more of a clown and then try being not try a clown at all, right? See what happens, yeah, yeah. See what sticks, I right? mean, there were times in my career, like when I was at, um, at secondary school and I was doing school plays, I was, it was a very different style of performing. Right. Um, Theatre performing. You weren't shuffling around. I wasn't jumping all over the place, but clowning, yeah, a lot more jumping around. Stand-up comedians. Most stand-up comedians, though, they don't shuffle around as much as I do. They don't, no. I, I watch them. I watch them stand still. You know, yeah, I think, I think it's a bit distracting to shuffle around quite so much as I do. Sometimes it depends on the size of the stage. You know, I've I've had the opportunity to work like a much larger stage before, and was very That's conscious true. that if I don't use the space, yeah, that looks you weird. You can take a right? stroll all the way around the stage. That's much yeah. Much a good Whereas idea. I've seen people that are pacing on a two foot wide <laughs> stage and you're like do you really need to be you know <laughs> do like, you need you're, to not, you're not Chris Rock on like a, on a, on a theatre show here no. like, you don't need to pace it you know on this tiny stage so you know you kind of need to work your movement through to again be ad- adaptability right you, yeah. gotta, you gotta work this show one way and work another show another way alright let's talk about a few quick questions um, how do you support yourself financially in Hong Kong all different types of work. I mean as I went through with comedy you know there were times when you know money was coming in yeah. in an, in a in a pleasant way uh through comedy i i never fully supported myself with comedy no you um, can't yet yeah, really in hong kong even someone like vivek it's only about 50 percent is some kind of standing and performing yeah um, and even is. you know the, the population is you know like 90 percent cantonese speaking so, so if you if you're not speaking in cantonese there's only so much money you can make that's right um so, you know, I, I was working as a freelance writer. You got was, a job at HK Magazine, didn't you? I did get a job uh, as an editor at, at HK Mag, which is the, you know, the free What's On lifestyle magazine yeah. around town. And that was great. I actually got that job essentially hired off the stage at Takeout Comedy. So that Brilliant. was, uh, they were looking to add humor to the pages of the magazine. And I used to do a lot of jokes about kind of Hong Kong yeah. uh, news, Hong Kong culture, yeah. Hong Kong versus China. And they said, you know, you kind of have a finger on the pulse and like satirical stuff. Can you write? Well, and there you are. There, you there you study political science. You've done writing. You're a good writer. So easy if you, easy if you step into that job writing for HK Sure, there. you know, and that's where, you know, you're not going to have an opportunity to fall on your lap sitting at your house, you know, with your dick in your hand, nope, so pardon, pardon my uh, my language here, but uh, yeah, so you go to the comedy clubs and you do jokes and you have no idea who's going to be in the crowd, so that was just lucky, I guess. Oh, well, I think actually, no, you, you stood out because 
you were covered by Time Out, Murph Plus, More Magazine, HK Magazine, South China Morning Post, and even the Philippine Airlines in-flight magazine I, I was you. I was in the Philippine Airlines in-flight magazine. So you, you, you I covered myself in HK Magazine. Let me just say, <laughs> I did great work for my own career by promoting Brilliant. my own comedy shows. Well, yeah, why not? Whatever, you know. It's not, you know, there's no, nobody's going to, like, put my feet to the fire Did you feel you were in the right place at the right time to get so much coverage in the press? I think I, again, I think I was a big reason for my own coverage. I think I tried to create more press around comedy, knowing that it would not only serve the comedy scene, but it would serve myself. I mean, I, I did a whole issue on comedy at, during one of the festivals for the magazine that uh, claimed that, you know, stand-up comedy is on the rise in Asia, not yeah. just in Hong Kong. And I, and I truly believe that is. I think it's there's ebbs and flows in certain scenes. And, yeah. um, and maybe I think the growth is much more explosive in, in some of the scenes mm. further south than yeah. in Hong Kong. Ah. And, um, but, yeah, I mean, in, in 2012, I think it was, a, it was a prescient prediction to say, uh, you know, five, ten years from now, English language comedy is going to be a far greater cultural force in Asia than it is now. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I was wrong on that. I don't necessarily know if, uh, you know, if some of the more shorter term predictions will, will ever pan out. But at that time, I mean, you know, the clubs were growing, uh, different promoters were coming into town. Um, you know, as much as I was promoting myself. Coming into town. Can you hear my kids? Your kids coming into town, enjoying, uh, enjoying comedy. I'm just checking the doors locked. They'll hear some banging soon. But yeah, I mean, I was I tried to be instrumental in growing comedy as well, not just promoting it, but running my own shows yeah. and and taking the you know the I Hong guess, Kong brand to China. But again, I think China. I think um, you were in the right pl- you are in the right place you were in the right place at the right time. Um, for me, I my big time was the ni- mid 1990s in Singapore, when they were opening up um, lots of shopping centres for shows and uh, corporate dinners for some sort of variety show. And I arrived in Singapore, and there was no one else in the whole country who had a unicycle. So, of course, I got bookings doing the standard unis- time on a big unicycle juggle fire. And I was just in the right place at the right time. And I think about 2012, c- comedy is start- was starting to boom in, in Asia. Yeah. And it, it's, gone bigger and, it's got bigger and bigger. Well, I think there's a... Still hard to make a full-term living, though, right? Even now yeah, in 2016. There were some, again, some... Other parts of Asia where people maybe are bilingual, trilingual. Yes. Um, you know, in the Philippines, there's a number of guys that are making a full time. Shout living. out to Gary Jackson who's gone over there to set up a club. Sure, I, I, yeah. absolutely. I was I went down and and uh, and did some shows down there in the Philippines as well with the comedy Manila guys as yeah. well as with with Gary. Um, Kuala Lumpur is exploding. They got yeah. new clubs, Singapore. I mean, scenes like that where the larger segment of the population is speaking English. Mm. Um, as the dominant language, I think the the, the sky's the limit for those mm. guys because you know English comedy has a much broader ability to uh, bring in huge crowds, right? Yeah. Whereas you know in Hong Kong we're still you know we're still kind of limited to Wan Chai to Soho, right? Like That's you even true. you even bring your show over to TST over the harbor and people are like TST, I'm not going to TST to watch English comedy. It's like I can't I can't I can throw yeah. a ball to the yeah. neighborhood that we're going to go to yeah. and that's too far away. Yeah, right? I, I think that's really interesting because I think Jamie Gong has been really influential setting up his full time takeout comedy club, but in a way Hong Kong there there is a, there is sort of a limit um, in, Ho- in Hong Kong how how big English based stand up comedy can be. Because, like you say, only a tiny fraction of the uh, people here speak English um, 
to a level where they'd really enjoy going to a com- an English-speaking comedy club. Sure, I mean, with the you know, with the number of comics that are here and with their ability to to turn over their material quick enough to have somebody. I mean, it, you know, if you come in to see a show and then the next time you come see a show, the jokes are all the same. Still, then you might say, "Well, I'm, I'm going to exactly. sit out for a couple of years, yeah, and uh, maybe I'll come back and and there'll be new stuff." I mean, I think the opportunity for you know international acts to come in. You know, people come out and they get excited about Maybe. that. I haven't seen that guy's material. Yeah. Right? I wouldn't. You know, I I did some hour long shows in Hong Kong last year. I wouldn't come back this year and say, "Hey, come watch my new." F-. You know, it's like I don't have another hour within nine months. Yeah. So, you know, I think part of that is being, you know, having the the foresight to understand how much return you're going to get on yeah. people coming in the door and saying, oh, that's something I could do all the time, right? Mm. And what that's going to take is more comics. You know, what that's going to take is uh, more infrastructure to have, you know, the comics from the other scenes coming through town, right? Yeah. Like having headliners from overseas yeah, or having headliners it, it, from China. Yeah, from I mean, you could, you could, in the foreseeable future, maybe have a guy who is based in Hong Kong but makes a living as a stand-up comedian by flying around... The region. Sure, you, you go, go to Shanghai, it. you go to Beijing, yeah. you do all yeah. the different smaller China cities, you go to Seoul, then you go to KL, you yeah. go to Singapore. I mean, there's there's a circuit, and it hasn't been built yet, and That's people are working on yeah. building it. And, and I think, you know, ten years down the road, it, we, this may... This may be a hilarious relic, this conversation. Maybe, listen, I know. Listen to them dreaming Who knows what's going to happen? Right. I'll tell you, Sean, every single skill I've learned, um, every single performing skill I've learned, I've somehow turned it into a money-making... Um, venture. It wasn't my right. aim, but I am a, I am a full-time professional entertainer. So when I learnt balloon twisting, of course that straight away went into shows. My first skill was juggling. That was straight away. Then I learnt unicycling. That went into the show. Um, balloon twisting has gone into the show. Everyth- yeah, everything I've learnt. So hopefully, stand-up comedy, even though I'm still not very good at it, hopefully by the time I'm good at it, there will be a way to uh, make some money from it. Perhaps. And <laughs> I think, you know, it, it rewards in Asia in a time when the when the sort of industry isn't even here, it does reward a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit or, or somebody who's a little business-minded about it. I mean, people are... I can be fairly cynical from time to time about the artistry of comedy. I mean, if you want to make money in Hong Kong, uh, you'd be best to work on how corporate your style yes. could be. I mean, yes. the money's in corporate gigs, so if you're yeah. up there and every third word is a swear word and all your material is about sex and drugs, then, no. you know, frankly, you're not going to be able to make the money of a guy who can put together a clean 20 minutes with no swearing. Let's talk um, about the different stuff then. This is uh, jumping in here. So, um, how do you... Corporate shows? How do you deal with corporate shows? Bloomberg News, Sony, you've done stuff for them? Uh, yeah, I've done I've done more emceeing work than I mean for most of my time in Hong Kong I I wasn't able to get my comedy set to be completely clean I mean I I like to be vulgar from time to time I, I used to like to have kind of dirtier material it's it's stuff that I'm I'm trying to transition away as a, okay. from as a personal challenge I mean to me what I find is funny is funny and when I'm at a comedy club I'm, I know I'm surrounded by adults I don't have to you know, I, I performed in front of families and kids for years. I I prefer to be able to talk about what I want to talk so, about. Um, so more of the work that I was getting through, you know, the ones you mentioned, uh, with help of some of the promoters around town mm. hooking me up with those gigs, um, was doing MC. So more of the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the compare of the yes. of the evening. I'm transition. I'm giving some remarks that the 
you know, the CEO wants to to have yeah. as a thing. I would do game show type stuff as well. So yeah. if they wanted to have lucky prize draw or games or auction off this or introduce the next act, I'd do, I'd do that stuff, but I would certainly not throw in my bluer material or my dirtier sure. jokes. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of a versatility kind of thing. If I had not had the experience of, of emceeing shows, I would not have been called and offered work like that because, yeah. you know, they're saying, well, that guy's good at dirty jokes, but he's not good at cleaning up and putting a suit on and, you know, yeah. and being and professional. And did you, did you uh, adjust your, your appearance, your costume? Yeah. Suit, oh yeah, tie. yeah. You dress up. You do that. You know. You sell out. You dress up. That's <laughs> that's all part of it, right? And and I think, um, as I say, like I, in Asia, I could at times be hard on people to say, you know, tighten up your stuff, clean up your act. You know, really challenge yourself to diversify your stuff. Um, not because you know I'm being an asshole, or I yeah. want them. You know, I want to control what they're doing. It's it's more of you know, there's not a broad enough appeal and interest here in just somebody who's funny in nightclubs. There's, yes. there's no money in that yet, yeah. right? And there might be someday, and I'm not saying that yeah. it's not worth working on, and certainly I love to, but... It's a very um, good point. Very if good you want to do this, you know, because people would say, you know, how, how can I get the bigger minutes? How can I travel? How can I get this corporate mm. or that corporate? It's, well, it's through not just having the same seven minutes that requires you to swear 23 times. It's, mm. you know, go in there and, and host more shows and try to yeah. build your skill set so that when people think, oh, who could do this work for 15,000 Hong Kong dollars, they think of your name above, you know, 10 other guys. That's right? certainly something I was thinking about just the last few months. Uh, I've been trying to get a new set where I've cut out the Pacific Hong Kong and even more, the Pacific mid-levels references in my set. Right. Because those references won't work more than 10 kilometers away from where I'm performing. Well, I mean, that for me, that was a big one because... You know, last year I decided I was going to tour around Asia, yeah. so I had to take out anything Hong Kong specific, and then I moved to Toronto yeah. and realized, well, goodness, anything Asia specific pretty well without, unless it's really broad, unless it's yeah. something that has sort of a global awareness, like something yeah. about China or Chinese politics, mm. um, it's just not going to work back home. So if, if you have an idea that you're going to live in Shanghai for three years and then you're going to move back to L.A. and become a famous comic, well, then you better start currently writing material that's going to go overseas to yeah. L.A. because otherwise you're going to start from step one again, right? Like, you're going to go that's back right. to an open mic and be like, well, what's funny about life in L.A.? Yeah. I don't know. Yes. They certainly don't care about my mid-levels joke, right? So, you know, it's... Mid-levels is a place where... A place in Hong Kong where lots of expats live. Yeah, it's a, it's a, <laughs> a moneyed paradise for the, the, the foreign colonial-minded expats. Did you have any private um, events like... An adult's birthday party or a wedding? Did you ever get, get any of those weird gigs? I didn't. I didn't. Good. I That's didn't tough. thrive uh, with too many private. Again, you know, I I really put a premium when I started doing comedy in Asia on trying to be as funny as I could as a as a nightclub comic, as yeah. as a as a comedy club comic. And so for me, um, I think the corporates didn't come you know fast and hard. And and we did. It's going to be hard to get corporates in Hong Kong because. Again, most of the audience is not necessarily going to speak English as a first language, or even as any language sometimes. Right, and they would have to be a Western firm, and they yeah. have to be sort of flying in, uh, you know, a global, yeah. a multinational so again, firm it's not that's a bringing huge people market in. for English-speaking yeah. corporates. Yeah. Um, but th I mean, it's there. The money's there. We did um, through Comedy HK. We did an event at a. It, it was an all Indian singles event. Okay. And uh, they wanted 
comedy, mm-hmm. I guess, and uh, and there was a there was a host, and we had a, a couple acts, and then I was supposed to go on at the end and do thirty. And uh, it was clear from the very beginning that nobody who, like, the organizers booked us, but nobody attending the event wanted comedy. It was <laughs> it's a singles event. I don't want to, yeah. unless I'm going to date the comic, I don't really want to hear yeah. that guy talk for 30 yeah. minutes. I should go out and have a drink and talk to everybody else. Um, and so in the end, we had to, I ended up running it as a game show. We, you know, I came up and instead of doing stand-up, I brought three single men and three single women out of the crowd and we almost did like a dating game because adaptability again just well, like that, in your old days on the uh that's it that was one of the, it's funny because when i think about the corporates in hong kong that's one that i'm most proud of because it was it was funny it was different it wasn't just straight yeah. stand-up but it was something that the people were happy to pay for uh that rewarded our ability to think on our feet and uh you know, and be versatile, and, and that was something, we were pr- we were proud. We walked away from that event with some money in our pockets, feeling like, you know, Brilliant. we worked for this, right? This was something that not just anybody could have come in and, and just, you know, hammered out. This was something that was unique to the skills that we brought to the event. Um, and Fantastic. That's, yeah, and that's something that I think there's there's room to grow in Hong Kong for people that are going to be creative and want right. to sell something that's not just... Hey, let me go come in and make fun of your CEO for ten minutes or whatever. Whatever they, whatever it is that people want to pay you to do in in corporates in Hong Kong. All right, here we come to what I call the randoms. Should I play some music? Here we go. Randoms. Da, 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 da. Yeah, it's pretty random to just play music. No, so no music. Oh, there's no music in anywhere. Okay, let's let's pretend there was music. I'll switch that off. There we go. Okay. Ah. It's been remarkable. This is a, a podcast about comedy that has never been funny once. Great job, Dan. <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. We've Woo! really nailed it. We've really been pretentious enough to talk about pretentious. The, the craft of comedy. We are wearing berets. I should mention that uh, we've, we've grown thin mustaches and right, are wearing berets. And, smoking French yeah. cigarettes. Yes, we've been sipping wine and smoking cigarettes the whole time. Uh, okay, we've talked about this one, actually, so that's good. How to make money... Um, as an entertainer or a comedian in Hong Kong. How about in Toronto? Uh, you know, similarly, in Toronto there's more infrastructure. I mean, yeah. that, that's a city with a very large, robust comedy scene, uh, a ton of shows, oversaturated with shows, oversaturated with, with comics. There's, you know, full-time businesses that have been around for decades yeah. that, um, that promote comics, that, you know, get them on television, that kind of mm. uh, move you through the ranks. So, you know, making money in a scene like that requires time, eh? Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to get your name out there. You've got to be patient enough to know that if you're funny, you know, it's going to take months, months, perhaps years for people to, again, think of you among a short list of people when they've got an opportunity and it's paid to think, well, who would be good for this? Yeah. Um, who do I want for this? And to, and to put you on that list. Um, so that takes time. Again, I'm, I'm quite entrepreneurial. The way that I'm trying to approach it in Hong Kong is I'm starting my own show. I mean, that's, a way to kind of get your name out there. Um, Are you trying to approach it in Hong Kong or in Toronto? In Toronto, oh, Toronto yeah. sorry, to, uh, to start my own show. It's similar to how I did it in Hong Kong, which was, you know, if you want more stage time, if you want a larger platform to show the sorts of things that you can do on yeah. stage, um, then be your own boss. Start your own show. Uh, you know, find a bar, find a venue, ah. approach it, you know, get a night, get a... get. You know, a designer, make a poster. So you're doing that? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm launching a show next month. Excellent. It, it, may, not, uh, it may not go. I mean, in, in Shenzhen, we used to run shows up in Shenzhen. I think we cycled through four venues before we found one that stuck. It took me two, um, over two years to find one that, you know, didn't yeah. die after the second or third time. It's, 
it's it's something that takes patience. There's as much luck as there is skill, and you you yeah. learn things along the road. But uh, you know, again, I I've got a job. I have a day job in Toronto. I don't. Uh, I ah, that's interesting. I don't. I I worked at a bar for a while. I just got a sales job. Again, it it's you know if I work nine to five, that leaves my evenings out to run my yeah. own my own comedy business. But I know it's you know some people think that's not the romantic way. You're not struggling for your art. You know, you're not uh, the standing. <laughs> Oh, there's, there's some comedy. Nothing funny about Chumbawamba, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a, I, I don't, I'm not a huge believer in the starving artist thing, only because... Uh, That's a pretty amazing reference. You got that straight away, Chumbawamba. Yeah, yeah. That's by two bars. Dude, I was a game show host. I'm quick, <laughs> you know. I, I'll, I require people to know things immediately. Uh, but no, you know, I, I'm a, I think that uh, it takes a while to mm. make money from something. So be patient, be smart about it. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to starve and, and be homeless just so I can tell jokes. No, and if, I can if you're if you're doing stand-up comedy, in the, um, that's been the evenings, the weekends. So yes, you can quite easily do a nine-to-five. Of course. Weekday job. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, if you have the luxury to do it, if you haven't put yourself in a situation where you need a second job in the night or you're yeah. do you raising feel a family or traveling somewhere, wherever, yeah. you know. Yeah, you're not married, you haven't got kids. I'm not married, I don't have kids. Yeah, you're still, you still got... Ladies. <laughs> you. Yeah. That girl in the cow. Yeah, she's listening, he's back in Hong Kong. I got one lady in the cow, apparently. <laughs> do you have any other um, skills that you... Uh, guitar no. playing? Music oh, yeah, playing? yeah, I... I uh, used to play music when I was uh, Has it ever growing up. Gone into your comedy act? No, never. I, I never. Um, I never really liked musical comedy. Mm. Like I, I respect it. I appreciate mm. it. You know, Weird Al. It's not your thing. It's not my thing. I don't. I don't find uh, like I wouldn't write like humorous lyrics. Mm. Or I kind of. Uh, I think a few times I've done a punchline that involves singing or whatever. Yeah. But uh, I don't. Uh, I don't find it that funny. So I don't think it would. It would ever come into my mm. comedy. Writing is obviously one of your skills. You've been a professional writer many times in your career. I have, yeah. Um, and you're, did, did it become slightly famous? Your stand-up, is stand-up comedy in Asia racist? I've read it. Oh, um, yeah. NTR, intersection, N-T-R-S-C-T-N. Intersection, yeah. That was a, a great article. Uh, thanks, yeah. that was. I wrote an article uh, last fall about... Um, just chatted with you know I traveled around Asia doing comedy yeah. for a long time and and uh, had many many conversations with people both from the east and from the west about the penchant for people to talk about race on stage yeah and uh, obviously you know different people's feelings about um, whether people were taking advantage of racist attitudes yeah. versus whether people were trying to be progressive or satirize, you know, the focus on race. I mean, you go down to Singapore, a place where, you know, the population split pretty evenly between Malay and Indian and Chinese. Yeah. And, I mean, it's like every day that's what they're faced with. You know, yeah. that's that's the culture there. And so, of course, they're going to joke about it. Um, but so many comics had expressed at different times, like, discomfort to me yeah. with certain people's sets or di- different jokes that they felt like, you know, that's a joke that you could never take from Asia and, you know, bring exactly, to the U.S. Yeah. or the U.K. I mean, that, you know, you're you're using a stereotype to get a laugh or you're, uh, you know, or literally that's just racist. Like, that guy went up and got a laugh from a joke that I thought was completely racist. You know, why did I get a laugh here when I think if you were in New York, people would have booed that joke off the stage? And I thought that was... It's in um, very interesting, I thought. Well, yeah, the, read it. the website... Read Intersect- his article! <laughs> the Intersection, yeah, N-T-R-S-C-T-N.com is a website that's about cultural convergence. And so they 
you know, I kind of pitched it to them as, uh, you know, here's a bunch of people from the West and the East who are living in Asia and talking about race and cultural mm. convergence. And I think and one of your points is also that because the scene's quite new here, um, things will develop and, and, the, and the, the, the simple stereotype jokes will maybe in a few years' time be old hat um, in the way that they are in the West. Because I think, I think Western humour as well, early uh, stand-up comedy in, in England, possibly in America, also had a lot of um, racial stereotypes. But it's, they've developed out of it and they've gone beyond it, so who knows? Sure, you know, and, 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 I mean, let's be honest. Like, I, I was one of the many people that, that found myself uncomfortable with certain things that I heard on stage, and I wasn't just writing it like, a, like I was the peer reporter. Obviously, I was the performer as well. I yeah. was up there on stages. I was sharing the stages with people, and I'm somebody that I... I hope or I've tried and I've certainly failed before to challenge myself to not be lazy in my writing or yeah. to kind of rely on cheap or easy stereotypes or to not say something that 10 years from now I'd look at and be not proud of at all. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I wrote that knowing that some people would be offended by the piece or they might think that I was attacking them. But I kind of had the thought I don't think, that... I don't think it was offensive and I don't think you were attacking it. I mean, if, if even one person stopped and read that piece if you read it all the way through looked, read it all the way through didn't just read the title yeah. and said well this god you know. if you read it all the way through and it made you stop at all and look back at your own material and think you know how am I approaching the topic of race then I think it was worth me writing but I did take quite a bit of flack for it obviously because some people maybe rely on uh, that type of material more than others and well, people, I, I'm as guilty as anybody you just thing is you say something about the mainland Chinese, you get a huge laugh, you think, oh, well, I'll better say that again in the next step. Right, and I've seen people do race material in Asia that was smart and that was clever, that took a stereotype and spun it on its head, and I've seen people that have done stuff that I thought, well, good Lord, if that was, uh, you know, if that was done in the 50s, I think that joke would have been, you know, exactly the same, you know, that's yeah, like a, yeah, like yeah. a Mickey Rooney so and Breakfast at Tiffany yeah. style, you know. So I guess the aim, aim to, uh, you know, take it to a starting point, racial stereotype but aim to to get better and better and better that's you know from my pretentious (laughs) idealistic comedic perspective that's what I would like to try to do for my own self and maybe I was you know putting out a subtle challenge to others to to raise their game but uh, you know I think it's a very I think it's a very influential article (laughs) in the history of stand up comedy in Asia I think your article will be will go down as a very interesting influential piece more of the randoms. You may not have a quick one off the top of your head, but if you, if you can come back to it. What was your best gig ever? Is there something that stands out? Any that really stand out in your mind? Best gig ever. I did a... I did a... I had a show where I really... It was... I did a show in uh, Shanghai one time uh, at an Irish pub, and it was... They really packed it. They'd never done a comedy show there. It was through Kung Fu Comedy, and... Uh, this great, great, great comic from Shanghai, uh, American guy named Paul Johnson mm-hmm. was hosting. Uh, fantastic comic, Audrey Murray was the was the opener. Uh, she's based out of New York now, but she used to be a kung fu comedy comic. And I was being given the supreme privilege of of being the headliner and getting to do an hour. And uh, and every just from start to finish, it was such a phenomenal show. Like it, you know, I. You know, I'll dust off my shoulder. I was on that night. I was it, me and the crowd were kind of on the same wavelength. Fantastic. You know, even you know, sometimes I'm feeling good and they're not. They don't like me or whatever. But uh, that night, it all just kind of came together. And I've been working really hard for a couple of years and had built the material up. And and that night, I just remember, 
Um, you did an hour. Just yeah, it was. Fantastic. I think it was the first time I'd done like a full hour where I was the kind of the only one build on the show, and and I was immensely proud of the accomplishment. That was the first time I'd done it. And How I did you work up for an hour? Because most of the sets we get in Hong Kong are like seven or eight minutes. How did you? Well, turn my to an hour. My my first step was I started planning shows up in China, up in Shenzhen and Guangzhou, uh, just because I was aware that I would never get the opportunity necessarily to do that amount of time unless I was the one that, unless I was my booker, right? Yeah. So um, the one thing was that we didn't have much opportunity in Hong Kong to do time like yeah. that, 25, 30 minutes. Yeah. You know, you, you got to build it first at 7, then it's 10, then it's yeah. 12, then it's 15, then it's 20, then it's 30. Mm. And each stage, you have to learn a new set of skills to keep the audience's attention for that yeah. amount of time. And I had the great opportunity through Takeout Comedy and Comedy HK to, you know, take some professional comics from the UK and Australia and the US for beers and ask them, you know, right. how do you turn five minutes into 45 minutes? How, right. you know, what skills do you that need was, to do? I was do? exactly going to ask that because, yeah, there aren't any local guys in our set who, who do it now. We all get seven or eight minutes. So you were able to ask the, the visiting comics. Of course, and, and, you know, and I was able to, as the promoter of those shows up in China, I was able to book, you know, great comics like Jim Bruski and Ryan Hynek and yeah. Darren Chu and Tambi Chan. And, you know, some of these guys were able to come up to China and do 30 minutes well, on when our you, show. When were you doing these shows? In 2013? 2014. Mostly 2014-2015, I think, and uh, we only did a couple up in Guangzhou, um, but we did a bunch in Shenzhen, and... uh, and you know, kind of tried to just get it to to click there, and th- and those were to me that was that was like going to the gym. You know, it was like I got to go up and would do a twenty or a twenty five or a thirty, and started to learn how to do longer form stories. You know, yeah. I, I'd go to open mics and ask to host, and would try out a a ten minute story that I'd written up. Uh, comic Andre King would come in uh, from New Zealand, a fantastic comic yes. from New Zealand, and he would give us you know comedy classes where. Yeah. He'd let me sit down with him and, and go through his hour set and say, you know, how do you give the audience a break? You know, how do you how do you, yes. you know, know when to, to lean on the gas pedal or how do you know when to like let up? Um, uh-huh. I worked hard on crowd work so that if uh, the crowd started getting tired, I could you know switch gears and kind of use different basically different you put a lot of work and effort into it. It was a goal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a goal of mine to try to learn how to build. A longer set, yeah. and uh, and again, you know, it was, you know, I, I had to just try to work on different skills. That that was all. That was always mm. my goal was to not be a one trick pony, yeah. like to go in and you know, I'm a one liner guy. All I do is one liner, so that's that's perfect. And that's yeah. if that's your thing, it's your yeah. thing. But to me, I figured, you know, I can't scream at a crowd for 45 minutes and and a keep my voice and b no. keep them interested. So I. I thought if I'm, you know, whatever I'm worst at, I should try at the next open mic. And so Brilliant. it was just a little bit of, um, you know, I take a bit of a, like a, like a work, workman's approach to, no, yeah. to art. You know, yeah. again, it's like I, I, it's not a romantic notion of art. I see it as a skill that you learn just as, you know, I, I see amazing people that are incredibly funny just by going up there, and that's not me. I, I work at it, you know. Yeah. I, I have to put effort. Despite all your hard work, you must have heard some... Very bad gigs or weirdest gigs. Is there anything that stands out? Not really bad. Could be weird. Or anything unusual? Bad, weird, unusual. We can come back to it. Uh, pretty awful. I mean, I've, yeah. I mean, funny we did, stories. We did. Uh, we did some shows in the Philippines a few times that were. Uh, we did a show in a brothel for, <laughs> for 
former U.S. soldiers and their prostitutes. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, though, I'm not necessarily proud of the, again, versatile, you know, building skills, uh, doing crowd work with men that have paid for their women to be on their arm. Uh, you know, I remember turning to one of my fellow comics on the show and he said, you know, I don't even want to make these people laugh. This is, you know, it's like, in, it's, that's a that's a pretty unique to Asia experience, perhaps, and I had no idea what I was stepping into when I booked the gig, um, and that was certainly an experience. It when was you a, booked the gig, how did you go about booking these things? Did you approach people in hotels or bars and say, "Hey, I'd like to do a show"? I, I hadn't. Bo- I didn't book any of the stuff um, overseas. I mean, that that was all through different comics around the scene that right. had maybe okay. a friend who ran a, a bar or, yeah. or, or ran a you know runs a hotel or whatever. Uh, or the com- Comedy Manila guys, mm. they were running a show and they offered to fly me in yeah. to host or whatnot. Um, for myself, yeah, if I, if if I want to run my own show, then it's find the venue, find the person, see if they can get on board, and then, you know, right. put together a press release, make a poster, find somebody who knows how to do that, um, set a price, promote it. You know, it's it's an imperfect art. You know, we've done shows for for. Three people, you know, like, you want to talk about, you know, worse shows. We used to do shows down at Takeo where there, you know, all the time, more com- more comics than there are audience members, you know. Oh, and remember those shows we used to get, was it the Liquid Room in Lang Kui Fong? Did you yeah, yeah. Uh, two people watching? Oh, yeah, we did a show at Bula Bula one time where we had two people and, you know, bless his heart, Jamie Gong would say, you got a crowd, do the show. You know, some people might have said, screw it, we cancel the show, but, you know, there's... If you look at it as just like, man, this is my nightmare, then fine. But if you look at it and say, okay, there might be something I could learn from this. Could I learn to not lose my momentum and focus on stage and just focus in on the two people I'm performing at and act as though I'm crushing in front of 500 people even though I'm only performing for two people that are barely paying attention to what I'm saying? That's good practice, right? Like figure, Figure out what the thing is you might be able to learn from that experience. And, man, in Asia, it's like... It's comedy boot camp. Like we went through some of the worst stuff I could, I could imagine out here, and I'm sure I'm better off for it. You know. Um, another quick one. TV and movie work. Have you ever been? Have I had any of those ones? I've no, Come not on. a mo- not definitely not a movie. Um, though I hear there's a documentary that um, Chad Daniels, Tom Segura, and Pete Lee, three fantastic uh, oh. U.S. comics, they had a documentary crew with them last year when they came out to Asia and they did Macau, they did Hong Kong, and they did uh, Shanghai or Singapore, I can't remember now. And uh, I was lucky enough to host the uh, the gig, the final night of their tour at the MGM Macau. Ah. And I just had uh, lunch with uh, Chad Daniels a week and a half ago when he was in Toronto, and he said that a couple of my bits made the movie. Ooh. So, bam! Yeah, you that movie ever sees the light of day, uh, makes it on Netflix, I could claim to uh, have been in a movie, but probably mm-hmm. On stage and off stage persona, the same? Similar? Exaggerated? I think, I mean, exaggerated. It's, you know, again, a laugh a minute here, sit, sitting in the, uh, you know, like I... I, I wouldn't say I'm the funniest person. You know, it's like every every comedian knows somebody that's naturally a hundred times funnier than them. Like a, a true character, yeah. somebody that every time you see them, they, you know, they're off the wall, hilarious. They're energetic. Yeah. Um, you know, if I'm putting on a suit and going into a day job, I I can't be screaming at people and, and also, swearing be, and doing dirty jokes. You know, I yeah. used to be a kindergarten teacher. Um, I can I can monitor my personality. Uh, pretty well, but I, I mean, my stage persona is, 
it's not a character. It's it's mostly an exaggeration of me at my perhaps at my truest, most vocal, most outraged yeah. self. Um, marketing yourself. Any particular tips or things you've learned along the way? Ugh, I don't know. Um, I've tried everything. YouTube, Facebook. Yeah, I'm, I just do everything. I think I'm. I think I'm awful at it. I think I. Like, I don't know how to do Twitter, Facebook... I feel the best way is, from my opinion, do a good show, and if it's a show where you're allowed to give out your own name card, give out your name card. Sure. I'm, I'm a believer in, in, you know, professionalism around the venue. You know, like, you, you know, shake hands as people leave yeah. the club, you know, be polite. If yeah. somebody comes up to you after and, and compliments you, say thank you so much. Don't refuse the compliment. Yeah. You know, at, thank them for coming to the show. Tell them, you know, when your next show might be. I, I try to do, you know, if somebody books you on a show, I, I thank them and send them a follow-up email. Mm. I try to be professional with that sort of stuff. I don't know how to promote myself. Um, I'm not good with social media. I'm not yeah. sure how to make my presence online, uh, you know, larger, grander. Um, I'm sure I rub people the wrong way all the time. I'm sure I, I shoot myself in the foot more often than I uh, than I do a good job promoting myself. I but it, so. but, uh, but if anybody knows how to market themselves in comedy, well, you, you know, you both my know. listeners will be listening to you now. Both my listeners go on podcasts and don't be funny. That's the way. <laughs> that's the way to do it. Do you still get stage fright? Um, I get ner- I get, I put pressure on myself, but I don't, I'm not afraid of performing. Um, mm. I mean, you know, again, it was something that I was kind of attracted to and addicted mm. to my whole life. Um, I get excited and I get enthused and energetic when I go up, but I don't really get, um, I don't get fright so much. Like, I, I don't get nerves. Okay. It's more, it's more, uh, it's more just me putting a lot of expectations on myself. Yeah. If it's a big opportunity, I want to do well, and, and so I, I sort of psych myself up for those sorts of things. Well, the last few questions now as we go in for the close Home here. stretch. Um, how do you see your future? Have you any particular plans, that, anything you're, any direction you're aiming for? Um, I... Are you just keeping your options open and just pushing as hard as you can? You know, hey, if... I love doing comedy. If I could... I don't have necessarily... You know, like if if I'm not a pro comic by the time I, you know, it's if I can keep doing comedy and it, whether it's a hobby or whether somebody pays me to do it, if I if I could continue to be around funny people and get to do shows um, with people I admire and, and think are incredible at, at the craft, then that's good enough for me. Mm. I don't. I just hope that I can keep doing it. You know, it, it's it's something that uh, I don't want to make it a job mm. you know I, I would never I would never want to continue to do comedy if I was getting up on a stage and I thought geez this is uh, this is not something I want to do today so um, yeah sure there we are Sean O'Bear absolute pleasure thank you thank this you is ben. Big Ben talking to Sean O'Bear this is an absolute pleasure to, there we uh, go. To, to join you in your home, surrounded by all of your weird, business weird business. pornography. <laughs> but, uh, but I really appreciate it, Ben. Thank you. It's great to be back in uh, in Hong Kong. I've seen you do some comedy this week. That was awesome. Cheers, sir.